Well, I always, like I, I come into these things with some kind of an idea of what I want to talk about. And almost always something happens before I do one of these or even in the course of it that totally shifts me into a different direction. I mean, I guess that's kind of the point of, of this. Now, this morning, I, I habitually go to Dutch Brothers. I get a mocha. Um, not the healthiest thing I could do. Not the least healthiest thing that I could do, but it's kind of... Uh, I've, I've worked at home um, sort of for myself for a long time. And one of the things that I notice is just you kind of have to get out and have some, I don't know, human... Me. Human contact, you have to have some ability to not just be stuck all day. And I, I think actually it's also, I've noticed for myself, it's very important to kind of have boundaries in terms of time of like I'm at home and then even though I'm working at home, I go someplace and then I come back and that kind of act is mentally preparing myself to be in work. And then at the end of the day, I generally, um, it, it could be a walk or it could be something else, but I will go out and do something else. And then I come back and that kind of takes me back to the home mindset. Um, not that I really have a home mindset per se. I kind of, I don't mean to imply that I'm a workaholic, but I do sort of work, um, yeah, on and off all of the time. And, uh, it's not, it's not that I have an unhealthy relationship with work. It's just that the kind of work that I do for the most part is, uh, is very cognitive and uh, a little bit creative. And that kind of stuff doesn't really have clear boundaries. So when I'm at home off of the clock, so to speak, I'm still thinking about things. I'm still, you know, having ideas. And then I also find that, you know, like it's for me to be productive, it's very helpful to have moments where I'm very focused intently on, uh, intensely on whatever I'm doing, but then moments also where I'm you know, maybe not even thinking necessarily of what I'm working on, but I'm a little bit, uh, you know, just kind of taking the pressure off and thinking more about other things. And then the stuff that I'm thinking about for work kind of comes to me, so to speak. Um, I, I interpret that as part of my brain is just, you know, working on it or, you know, whether it is or not, something will happen that makes some kind of connection. And then I'm like, ah, there you go. That's how you do it. And I find that very, very useful, actually. I find that, uh, you know, I, I've tried to be focused just on working for extended periods of time. And I'm, I'm pretty good at focusing. I think probably better than average. But I still find that uh, depending on the kind of work that I'm trying to accomplish, that's not the most productive and certainly not the most effective use of my time. Uh, similarly, just screwing around all the time, definitely not. I, like one thing that I've, um, kind of an unfortunate thing that I've discovered, I was gonna say recently, but probably in the last like decade or so, is that I used to think I could work while having like a podcast or YouTube videos or even, this is one that's depressing, but even like a music in the background. And it turns out that unless that music is something that is really truly background music, and by that I mean 
probably no words, um, not really cognitively stimulating at all, doesn't demand any attention. Um, it's not good. I mean, it's not bad, but it's not so good that I have to like focus on it a little bit. And it's not so bad that it bothers me. Like really just neutral, uh, the Soylent, so to speak, of music. Uh, you, you might not have tried Soylent, but there's a, a thing, which is like a meal, a nerd, basically people call it nerd insure. It's a meal replacement thing um, that is, a, each one of the little bottles is like a fifth of your daily requirement of calories and nutrition. At least that's the idea. And if you've never tasted it, the thing that is remarkable about it, the at least, I mean, they have now so many different flavors and types, but the thing that I find truly remarkable about it and uh, somewhat disturbing actually, is that it is so inoffensive. It's not, it's not, I wouldn't say it's good. It's not bad. It's just like, it, it's hyper neutral. It's almost eerily creepily neutral. And I think it's actually a good thing for what it's trying to do because I wouldn't want to live solely on it, but I could, I could have it several days a week. Um, it's a, it's a really nice thing as, as weird as it sounds. It's, it's vegan. It's super easy to prepare, basically zero preparation. And if I'm working, for example, and I don't want to go someplace for lunch, I don't want to make lunch. I can just grab one or two of these things and take that and, you know, it's maybe not the healthiest thing, but it's probably not any less healthy than fast food options um, for the most part. So it's kind of, it's kind of nice. I, you know, I'm not advocating it, but it's something that I enjoy and find useful. But the thing that I'm trying to get to here is just, it's so neutral, so neutral, um, eerily neutral. That's what I need for the music if I'm going to work. Uh, if I have other music that's more engaging, either positively or negatively, uh, it, which includes like, you know, if, if it's something that I really like, uh, that can be too much. It can be, you know, either it's distracting or it gets annoying. And if it's something that I dislike, then I have to go like context shift, change it, find something else, context shift back. And I, I'm pretty fast at those context shifts, but they still do interrupt my flow and I definitely notice there's a cost attached to it. Now I, I know people who you know like if they context shift it destroys them for like a half hour or an hour. For me it's more like five minutes or a few minutes uh, but it's still enough that it kills your productivity if you keep doing it. So unfortunately what I've learned is multitasking for most things doesn't seem to be a thing. Um, I was going to say for me, but I think for most people that there are certain things you can do where you're doing something and you have something going on in the background and they, they're compatible somehow and it works. Um, I have things like that as well, but most of what I work on most of the time that just doesn't work. Um, it's, it's interesting and kind of annoying. Uh, the, the limitations of human cognition, the limitations of our, our brains are very frustrating, actually, to me. Uh, one of, both, both internally, like the lack of capacity for doing many things concurrently, the lack of capacity for uh, 
Yeah, I mean, just the amount of time things take, uh, the limitations that we have, I find that very frustrating. And the other thing that I find extremely frustrating is just other people, you know, and it's not the, it's not like, you know, oh, other people are, you know, I, I don't have this idea that I'm so superior to other people. I, you know, presumably roughly the same. I, I think, you know, the, the smartest and the stupidest people, uh, probably not that much range barring extreme outliers, you know, but for, for the most part, if there's nothing like actually wrong with somebody, somebody who's not that bright, not that dumber, that not that much dumber than somebody who's extremely bright, at least in, in my opinion. Um, it, it, and of course, on the scale of human intelligence, it seems like a big difference. It's just that that scale is so small and limited that, you know, it's, it's like comparing somebody who's making minimum wage to somebody who's making a half a million dollars a year. Both sound like a big difference. I mean, and, and you'd much rather probably make a half a million dollars a year than minimum wage. Um, but both of those compared to say my favorite guy to talk about, Jeff Bezos, are zero. I mean, they're effectively zero. You know, the, the amount of time and effort it takes I, for Bezos to earn, well, earn is a delicate word, for Bezos to increase his net worth by a half a million dollars is a couple minutes. And it's a couple minutes, not of work time, but a couple minutes of sleep. Uh, it might even be a minute. It, it, it's a very short period of time. So when you think about that, I mean, if you're, if you're making, say you're making $100 an hour, let's say 60 because I don't want to do very much math. You're making 60 bucks an hour, which is not great, but it's a decent hourly rate. It's more than a lot of people make. 60 bucks an hour, you're taking home a dollar or two in a minute. And that is the time that you're on the clock. You know, you're not making 60 bucks an hour while you're sleeping. Uh, your net worth is not increasing at that rate. So if you imagine though, you're making 60 bucks an hour, while you're on the clock, your net worth is increasing by a couple of bucks, right? Yeah, not even a cup of coffee at, or, or a super cheap cup of coffee at Starbucks, maybe. Jeff Bezos does that in his sleep, makes, you know, in the same amount of time that you're making basically a cup of coffee, he makes a year's salary. I keep saying makes, it's such, it's amazing. And actually this will get to what I wanted to talk about. But it's amazing how much that is just embedded in me. I mean, I, I can correct myself a million times, but I can't get out of that idea. Um, obviously, he's not making it. He's increasing his net worth by it. Other people are making it for him. Uh, but his net worth is increasing by that much, by a nice, really nice year's salary um, in that much time, whether he's working or not. Uh, it's, it's kind of... It's so fucked up, but it's, it's extraordinary to think about. So that person who's making a half a million dollars a year or the person who's making zero dollars a year um, on, the, on the scale just of him is nothing. And of course, you know, compared to say, uh, gross domestic product of, of the world, for example, his is not very much. So all of these things, 
flatten out to almost nothing. And you know, if you look at like what is the energy expenditure, uh, if you convert, energy is in some sense a kind of real currency. Um, it's not like a fiat currency like uh, like dollars. It's not something that is finite and kind of useful um, like gold, where you can kind of argue yeah, this is sort of a precious, relatively resource. Um, of course, in in reality, if you look at the amount of gold in the universe, um, there's a shit ton of it. It's it's like, you know, it's not as abundant as copper or carbon or silicon, but there's so much of it that, um, you know, you could basically have all the gold you want if if energy was not a map, not an issue. Like you have access to, you know, say the amount of energy coming out of the sun, just heading toward earth. If you had access to all of that and you had the ability to convert that into useful work, you could have as much gold as you want. Um, you could be drowning in it. And to me, that makes it not very valuable. I mean, it's kind of silly that, you know, it's like this, ooh, this uh, metal that has, you know, relatively noble properties um, in the sense of not reacting well with a lot of things other than like aqua reagia and such. Um, yeah, it, it, it's got, it's not like worthless. It's got some value. It's a nice conductor. It doesn't oxidize very easily. Um, but yeah, I, I just don't see, I don't, I don't get the value attached to it, but you know, that has some value you could argue, uh, but energy really fundamentally, as I see it, energy and basically, um, raw material are the real sort of hard, um, things of value in the universe, so to speak. Uh, there are also things that are just intrinsically finite resources like, um, real estate to some extent, at least, you know, barring sufficiently advanced technology. I mean, if you have advanced enough technology, you could have, um, you know, basically a, a space platform for each person on the planet, actually, that has the surface area of Rhode Island, um, internally, like an O'Neill cylinder kind of thing. So it's just like a large spinning cylinder, uh, gives you earth gravity, gives you, you know, basically a regulated environment, some shielding on the outside from uh, meteorite impacts and radiation. Everybody on the planet could have that. And it would not even begin to consume just the asteroid belt. Uh, just certainly, you know, like if you start disassembling mercury, um, for example, easy, easy problem. Yeah, no problem at all. And you could construct whatever real estate you want. So in that sense, the real estate is not even intrinsically valuable. Um, if you have, if you imagine like super advanced kind of VR to the point where it's basically indistinguishable from your mind's perspective from reality, um, what kind of experience could you have that is unique to being outside of that? Uh, I mean, obviously intellectual ones would probably be it. And those are really limited to, um, you know, up to the point where we have sufficiently advanced artificially intelligent machines. Once you get that, um, it starts, you know, what, what could you have that is really unique? Um, and it, I think it does come down to 
energy and the ability to change things in certain ways, um, to, you know, have experiences in certain ways. And those, of course, are still kind of almost limitless. When you look at, um, yeah, I guess if that comes down to computation, the amount of computation that you can do, and I mean in the sense that everything fundamentally is kind of, I don't want to reduce everything to computation, but I mean, physics is sort of a, a form of computation. It's the progression, the time evolution of things from one configuration to the next. You could simulate that. You could simulate something with a lot of approximations that give you something that would be basically indistinguishable from anything that you want. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm going off on a long tangent of a tangent. So reeling back in a little bit. The thing I wanted to talk about today uh, because of an experience this morning was to do with humans' sort of limited ability to... Um, to think and specifically I was I was at Dutch Brothers and they always have this line of cars right and today the, the funny thing about this is um, this gets to my general idea that a lot of like things that are really brilliant in in some sense go and I guess this goes to the limitation of human intelligence as well Things will go for a very long time before someone has the realization to like, why don't we just do this? And then when you see it, you're like, oh, that's really super obvious. Um, like calculus, people have trouble with calculus, but once you understand calculus, it's, I would say, pretty obvious in retrospect. If you didn't know calculus and you had to come up with it, you might have some trouble. Um, if you didn't know the direction to go, you didn't have the mathematical tools, to get there. But similar to that, this is, this is not calculus, but they always have this line of cars. And often the line of cars would start extending into the street, which is obviously bad. So today what they did, they have this huge parking lot, unoccupied, basically. Uh, there's an there's a insane amount of commercial, speaking of real estate, insane amount of commercial real estate that is just sitting vacant. And this is not because of the pandemic. This is something I've noticed for uh, quite some time. I, I've been looking at offices for years, uh, potential offices. And one of the things that strikes me is like, there'll be these places that are just sitting idle, vacant. Uh, nobody is paying rent for them. And yet the people who own them will not reduce the rent. They're charging or they want to charge exorbitant amounts of money for something that there's apparently no market for, which is, it's kind of weird. And actually, weirdly enough, I think this gets to what I'm trying to get to, which is people, you know, have this, this thing, this row of cars. Today, they blocked the part where the cars would normally turn. And instead, they had to go like a little bit further out and then back in. Not a big deal. Pretty obvious. It's like, of course, why not? Um, they haven't done this before. And it's one of these things that like, once you see it, you're like, why haven't you? Why didn't you do this a long time ago? Bought them many car lengths extra. Uh, so they could still be sticking out into the street, but it would take a lot more people, a lot more traffic. And uh, yeah, so to me, no brainer, seems like an easy thing. Nobody else is in the, uh, in this, this area. They have, they have other empty buildings, but nobody's using them. 
So the parking lot is just totally vacant, basically no cost. And I'm talking with the barista uh, who's taking my order and she's explaining like some people, cause I was, I was saying like, this is off, this is awesome. Why don't you, this is great. I can't believe we never thought about this before. Uh, and she's like, yeah, it's great, isn't it? But some people are upset about it. And you're like, what, what, what the fuck? And you realize at a certain point that people by and large, um, and I don't want to be too disparaging here because I'm not saying this is like some people are just really fucking dumb. I think this is almost universal aspect. In fact, I'm going to say it's a universal aspect to varying degrees of humanity. Uh, but that little change, you know, they have this idea in their mind of how things are. And once they've got that idea, it is set in fucking stone. And any change to that, any perturbation bothers some people, really bothers some people. It's, it's a weird thing and it's kind of, it's kind of disturbing and kind of like, come on, just like, obviously this is better. Let's just go with this. It's the same to me, actually, bizarrely enough, as uh, my, my mom is, um, I don't know exactly her age, but she's in her mid-70s. And she's always been good with computers and electronics, this kind of stuff. But there are so many people her age, and even younger, who struggle unreasonably with things that are, I would say, very intuitive. Um, very, and I don't mean they're intuitive because I've had computers and technology my entire life. I mean, if you took them and you showed them to somebody in the 1600s, um, I feel like opening your iPhone and touching a couple of things and following this kind of stuff. Once you got past the idea that you have this magic polished river stone that shows you stuff um, and you can touch it, I think you'd figure it out. I think it's not that it's not that hard, but people. Most people, I, I do think that's true, most people are so locked into whatever is the way that things are that they fight it. They will, they'll fight change, whether it's somebody else trying to actively change something. They're like, this is the way it's always been. Um, I mean, this is go to Medicare for all. You know, the, one of the things that we have to fight against here, annoyingly, is that there are so many people who are like, oh, private insurance is the way it is. That's the way it's got to be. It's like, well, you know, no, there are better ways. There are better ways. There are things that you can do that help you help other people cost less, uh, are just better experiences. You know, you don't have to go to the doctor and every time you go to a new doctor, spend 10 minutes filling out forms. That's dumb. There's no reason to make it so. And Part of the reason that things are the way they are, and it's frustrating as hell to me, is that people get so locked into this stuff that they will actively fight you. I mentioned before spending like a year at ASU trying to get something that should have just been obvious and I shouldn't even have had to argue for it. It should have just been done before I was there. And yet to get that done, I came up against so much opposition it's just staggering how much people are invested in things staying the way they are. Um, and not, not because it benefits them even. Like things could be much better for them, but they don't want change. They don't want, um, yeah, it, it's such a weird thing. And I guess um, 
I don't know what this is. I'm very glad I don't have a drop of it, frankly. I mean, I, which is not to say that I'm superior in any way here. I definitely am as much bound to my own kind of worldview and paradigms and all of this stuff as other people. Um, but again, I'm in that respect a little bit more advanced than most people. Um, still, you know, on an absolute scale, we all suck. But doing a little bit better there. I'm, I'm pretty adaptable. And when I see something that's an improvement or I see something that I can fix, I feel motivated to do it. When there's something that, um, you know, when you see something where people are doing the same stupid shit over and over again, and you just wonder like, why don't you try something else? I mean, I guess this, this is a through line that goes, uh, it touches many of the things that frustrate me. Like if you look at the, the Democrats, one of the things, and actually I'm not even gonna just focus on the Democrats, but the Democrats are particularly guilty of this. Trump, as far as I'm concerned, and I don't mean to just pick on Trump, but Trump and the modern Republican party, and to some extent the Democrats as well, but yeah, don't wanna falsely equivocate these things, but you know, there's some equivalence there. Um, but these guys are using tactics which I would liken to machine guns in early wars. And as soon as, as soon as you have a machine gun, one would hope that, you know, you'd start thinking, well, shit, we don't want to do this thing where we're marching in formation toward the machine gun. I mean, marching in formation also, you look at the US Revolutionary War, um, guerrilla warfare, the history of this, the amount of time that it takes generals and, you know, even the soldiers themselves, the people who are in the thick of it, to go from one tactic, oh, we've always done it this way, to maybe this way isn't very effective now, the, you know, the ground has changed, the reality has shifted. Um, you should look at that and then say, eh, let's, why don't we do something else? Why don't we do something better? And yet, no, just keep making the same fucking mistakes over and over again. This is one of the things that I find extremely frustrating about this moment. And I think it's, I don't think it's specific to this moment, but it is definitely a problem at this moment in history. People are so stuck with the way things are that they can't see a better way. And in fact, they can't see, um, you know, just to be, to pick on Democrats a little bit, they can't see how much what they're doing is not helping them. Like there are so many things that just are not helping our cause. And yet, you know, they, like the, this idea of socialism, you know, McCarthy era shit. You think about it, FDR was not five years ago, you know, a while back. McCarthy was not 10 years ago, a while back, yeah. And yet, all of this stuff has so polluted people's minds and they're so locked into these ideas that they can't get past them. Uh, and it, it's, it's just, it's frustrating. I mean, it's one, there, there's a, uh, before he died, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but uh, before Steve Jobs died, he gave a commencement speech, I think to, um, I wanna say Cornell, but I, it could have been, um, that's gonna kill me. I don't remember which university, but he gave a commencement speech. It was probably someplace in California, someplace in Silicon Valley. But 
you know, uh, if it was, who knows? But if not, maybe it was someplace else, but whatever it was, whatever it was, gave this speech, and it's a good speech, it's worth watching, but he goes through three things. He's very big on the three things, and I think uh, is current tense as though he was still around, but he was very big on three things. And when I say three things, I mean any kind of spectrum of choice. He was always kind of like reducing it to A, B, and C. Yeah, at, at the time he took Apple over again, uh, he took a little hiatus, was forced out, came back. And when he came back, Apple's product line was just a mess. So he, he sort of looked at that and said, you know, like, fuck all this shit. We'll stop a bunch of this and we're going to reduce things to three things, like good, better, best sort of options. Uh, people are very stuck on that, too. I don't know that that's necessarily the end all be all of everything, but it's, it's a funny thing that, uh, you know, even everything that is now the old sort of like everybody's doing it and it's not necessarily the best choice was at one point the thing that you're trying to change things to um, that was then obvious. It's, you know, it is a dynamic shifting kind of, kind of field. But he, did, he went over these three things. And one of the things that he went over in this speech was this idea that death is actually good in the sense that, um, and I find this kind of depressing, uh, but his idea was basically that death keeps things shifting. It keeps things from getting overly stagnant. It's, it's a concerning thing, actually, for me. Um, like, I, I don't think Peter Thiel, with his baby vampirism, is, um, is going to find the fountain of youth. Uh, but at some point in probably the nearest future, we will have the technology to live much longer. And at the current state of things, the people who get that technology will by and large be wealthy people. Um, you know, may, maybe other people, but especially people who are billionaires. And when you think of like, imagine Jeff Bezos, imagine if he actually becomes a trillionaire, as he very likely might, and he's going to live essentially indefinitely. Um, that scares the shit out of me, honestly, because he, and he's not even like, imagine Trump, if Trump was going to live indefinitely and he's the president, um, yeah, the, the things that could change there, the amount of stuff that happens when somebody has accumulated power and now they can hold on to it. I mean, when you look at, um, like the history of pretty much everyone in humanity, um, you know, you'll have somebody like Genghis Khan who conquers a huge chunk of the world, but then uh, they die and then things kind of, you know, there's infighting, things get sort of fractured, different people are sort of vying for power and then things end up falling apart. If the person who has power is able to retain it and not to die, it, it's scary. It's actually, I find legitimately scary, especially as technology gets more advanced and the ability to maintain and concentrate power gets greater. Um, doesn't necessarily mean things have to go down that path, but it's a thing that we should worry a lot about. And I, I personally would love, I mean, I just think about like, if I could live even just a thousand years, 
very, a blink of an eye still on a geological time scale. But imagine you could live a thousand years and be biologically as healthy as I am now or better would be nice. And, you know, like just the stuff that you could do, the things that, the one sort of funny thing about this is I know a lot of people who are bored and who are, and I say that with a certain element of disdain in my voice, but uh, I know a lot of people who are like, oh, I just, you know, and I, I have, I've certainly at times in my life been in a position where I was maybe depressed or I was like, you know, if existence ended now, wouldn't be that bad. But even in those moments, I kind of saw, you know, if, if things end now, this is the end of the story. Might as well continue things because they could get better. They could get worse too, but they could get better. And if they end now, they never will get better. So to me, you know, better to take the chance. I would love that. I would love it so much. But the cost of doing that, uh, especially if this is something that is available for a price, becomes that people who currently have a lot of power, I mean, imagine the Koch brothers becoming effectively immortal. You know, when I say immortal, obviously, probably not gonna live forever, but you know, at some point in time, something happens. It's an interesting thing, actually. There was an analysis, um, I don't recall where I read it, but some article was talking about if you eliminate age and age-related disease as the cause of death, how long do you expect to live? And the thing that's shocking about it is it's not that long. It's, it's on the order of a low number, low single-digit thousands of years based on your risk for accidents, for, you know, car wrecks, for things that, um, you know, tripping and just random small probability stuff, small probability over a very long period of time, not that a few thousand years is a long period of time, but it basically becomes inevitable. At, at some point, the, you know, the risk of something happening at any moment can be very, very low but the accumulated risk of something happening at any moment, that low risk over a hundred years becomes very likely. This is, this is one of the things that worries the shit out of me, frankly, about nuclear weapons. Um, because nuclear weapons, we've, and actually, I mean, if, if there's a positive thing you could say about Trump, I, uh, not to say positive things about him, but one positive thing that surprised me is that he seems to be disinclined to really like go to war. Um, he, he has done a little bit of that, but it would be very beneficial to him personally in terms of consolidating power, and yet he hasn't done it. So kudos to him for that maybe. But I was very concerned that because of things that he said, not because of things that he actually did, but because before he was elected, things came up about like first use. So by first use, I mean, can you use nuclear weapons? Should they be off the table? Or can you use them for a first strike? And the, the policy has been, we only use them other than Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is a very big exception. Other than those, we have basically decided and committed to ourselves, no, there's a hard line. You do not use them. Um, the no first use taboo has been strong. The problem with these, the thing that scares me about them, is that 
you have this arsenal of weapons that can be launched from any point on the planet to any other point and get there in a half hour, maybe 45 minutes, but very, very short period of time. Um, and they have a yield. Like many of these things have yields that are like huge bombing runs in World War II wouldn't even come close to the yield of one of these. And certainly when they have uh, multiple warheads and each one is independently targeted. And the targeting on these things is better than, like, you know, you watch um, Catch-22, the old, well, you could watch the new one. New one kind of sucked as far as I am concerned, but you watch the one from the 70s. Um, and you see, like, they're on these bombing runs and they're dropping bombs and they're kind of, they're doing an okay job of aiming, but a lot of stuff is just going everywhere. Um, these are not smart bombs. They're just like, okay, we've got all these planes, drop a shit ton of stuff, and we just kind of hope that the targets that we're trying to hit actually get hit. Um, nuclear weapons can hit the specific target you're aiming for in 30 minutes on the other side of the world without deploying any troops, and they can do it very confidently and really definitely destroy that thing. How, as a general, do you not use that? Especially like if it, it's easy enough when things are okay, but imagine there's some kind of domestic threat, like uh, war actually taking place here. The idea that you have, or, or anything at all that really, yeah. I mean, you look at, look at the history of this stuff in, uh, in the Korean War, there were a lot of generals who were advocating, and, and in Vietnam as well, who were advocating for just nuking the shit out of, uh, out of these places. Because it's on the other side of the world, who really gives a fuck? Um, you're kind of like, and we can just, I mean, they wouldn't probably have used ICBMs, they'd probably just drop them from planes, but yeah, it's something you can almost understand like why people would think this, especially, you know, if you are a person who is kind of amoral or you have some kind of, uh, like the calculus that you do is, okay, we're gonna kill a lot of people, but we're saving more lives. You know, when you start doing that kind of calculus, um, you come to some pretty fucked up conclusions. It's easy to understand why people would come to these kinds of conclusions. And it's, the thing that scares me again is I think it's almost, like it's low probability at any instant of using them. But on the when you start getting to like a 100 year, 200 year time scale, it's almost inevitable. Yeah, I mean, it, unless something fundamentally changes and these things like are taken out of commission, um, it's almost inevitable that somebody will break the first use taboo. And once somebody does, the thing that's scary about them is that they're not as scary as you think. Um, what, am I, what do I mean by that? Well, you know, in the 80s you have um, the, what is it, the day after, and they're showing like a total nuclear assault, uh, the MAD situation, mutually assured destruction. US, Soviet Union, both launch their missiles, pass each other in flight, hit each other, and the world is devastated. Yeah, and they are devastating weapons. But the thing is, like if you look at Hiroshima or Nagasaki, um, the amount of damage done by those is not that different than say Dresden, the firebombing kind of stuff with conventional weapons. And the, the horror 
involved. Not that different either. I mean, radiation is different, but when you have streets where the asphalt is burning and anyone going outside is going to burst into flames, I mean, you know, you have your skin melted off essentially. Um, you don't really care if that's because you got nuked or because of conventional weapons. It sucks and it's horrible either way. So once you start using these things and you realize, oh, well, this is no worse than this other thing, and especially like you're using stuff that's relatively small yield, so you're not going to get probably nuclear winter, you know, because we've a hundred of these things have been detonated on our own soil. I mean, if you look at the Nevada testing grounds and other, other places, we have nuked ourselves quite a bit. And granted, many of these were underground, but a lot of air bursts. And when you think about it, scary, scary, not, um, not that bad. The thing that's bad about them is the idea of using everything. But when you start thinking about it is one of the things that worries me here, because if you use those in a limited way, then you start realizing, oh, these are actually really useful tools. Um, they're very powerful, very simple, very easy to deploy. And once you have the idea that you can use them without ending the world, I, I can't imagine that genie ever going back in the bottle. I think it's going to be something where people will start doing it. And then once you've gotten past, okay, we're going to use them. It's not that hard to go from, it's a huge leap to go from conventional weapons only to nuclear weapons. But once you start using, say, low-yield tactical weapons, you know, kiloton range weapons, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and even less kinds of things, it's not that hard to go from that to massive thermonuclear weapons. And the, the thing that's crazy about that is once, once you develop the ability to make a thermonuclear weapon, the ability to scale that is almost unbounded. Uh, there's the Sar Bomba which I don't want to really talk about nuclear weapons too much, but I mean, the, the Sar Bomba um, was designed to be a hundred megaton yield. And the thing is, it, once you get these things, it's very easy to dial them back. Just change the amount of fusion fuel. They, they scaled it back mainly because they didn't think that the, the plane that was dropping it could get away in time. But this was something that could be, it was giant, massive. We've, we've, come a long way in terms of making these things more compact today. But it was this giant thing and it ended up being a 50 megaton uh, blast and just flattened the island that it was, was dropped on and had horrible consequences predictably. The reason we don't have tons of these things in our, uh, or even like gigaton yield things in our arsenal is that it turns out that it's actually more effective to have more of the smaller yield stuff. It's not that we can't do it. It's just that, you know, it's, and, and also like when you have something that can in one step erase an entire city, uh, the horror of that is pretty, it's pretty devastating. You're probably never going to use that. But if you're an asshole army guy or air force, whatever, and you want to hit a target, you know, if you have something that is say like a um, like a bfg or a, a big what is it called the um the thermobaric weapon i can't think of the name uh, but if you have something like that where it is essentially a large 
conventional weapon, if you had a nuclear bomb that was comparable in size and yield or smaller and comparable yield, and you start using that, it's very tempting. And so it's easy to imagine people doing that. And then once you get there, you can start increasing the yield, start hitting more targets and using them in worse ways. So again, like low probability, um, worrisome that low probability integrated over time gets bad. So on, on that cheerful note, I'm just, uh, just noticed I actually am late for a meeting, so I have to go. Thank you very much and Zai Jian. <laughs>